All right, this is Brian Nestandy here with Politics, Culture, and Conversation, and uh, getting back into my podcasting hobby, which I've been neglecting for a few months, but trying to get back at it. And today I have a fantastic guest that I'm honored to have here. And uh, first of all, shout out to our mutual friend of Kirby and Paulette Hines and our introduction through them and to you. And to you, I'm speaking to Ken Morris. And Ken has a history, has a great ancestral history of being related to uh, Fed- Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. And uh, I'm going to ask Ken to talk a little bit about his life story and uh, a foundation that he runs and just current events on where we are in society with um, our issues of racism and our culture and so forth and maybe how we can uh, build on some successes and hopefully not backslide, but hopefully just get into those issues. And Ken, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my, my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so and so we just met, folks, so you out there. So it's kind of a cold uh, conversation as far as we haven't really met, but I think um, we'll get through it okay. And if you don't mind, Ken, just walk us through, how about if we start with your ancestry? And and I've read some interesting stories about you and, and how you yourself had um, come to understand it and and deal with it and or, or not at first. And then, but coming from those, that background, and and I know the history. I read some of your your grandfather in particular of how that can weigh on you in some ways as a responsibility. And do you accept that, or do you push past it and go about and do other things in life? But please tell us your story and a little bit about your foundation, maybe too, and maybe interwine that if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm the great 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 grandson of Frederick Douglass and the great great grandson of Booker T. Washington. And when people meet me for the first time, there are usually a couple of questions that they ask. And, and the first one is, so you're related to Frederick Douglass and to Booker T. Washington? Well, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> and how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, and how, how did that happen? And they always follow that up with, and it better be good. <laughs> so as you can imagine, there has been this kind of a weight of expectation that I've carried around for all of my life and really trying to live up to these two influential and iconic heroes and American heroes. Then the other question that I get is, so I know that Douglas and Washington weren't related to each other, so how is it you're related to both of them? And so I always, let's start there. <laughs> and here's how it happened. It happened on my mom's side of the family. So my mother's mother, Nettie Hancock Washington, is Booker T. Washington's granddaughter. And my mother's father, Frederick Douglass III, is Frederick Douglass's great-grandson. So my grandparents met in 1941 at Tuskegee Normal School and Institute, which is, is the school that Booker T. Washington founded in 1881 at the age of 25. Mm. My um, grandparents happened to be on campus the same day. They were rushing across to get to the other side and literally bumped into each other, didn't know that the other descended from an historic family, and they fell in love at first sight and wound up getting married just three months later. And so it was a true love story and perhaps meant to be that these two families would come together. My mom was born. She's the product. Can I ask you there for a second? Did yeah. they ever tell of when they both realized the lineage there and the connection? I guess it couldn't have taken too long, right? Well, no. Yeah, it, yeah. it didn't take too long. But I, I know that they got married three months later. Yeah. And I'm the father of two daughters. And I've always said to them, you know, don't get, don't get <laughs> married after meeting somebody <laughs> and only knowing them for three months. That's take, good advice, probably. Yeah, take some time to 
to get to know uh, the person before you get married. But in this case, they did fall in love right away, got married. My mother, Nettie uh, Washington Douglas, is the product of that relationship, and she lives in Atlanta. My mom is an only child, so when I was born, I am the first male to carry the dual lineage. That's how, how the two families came together. You know, and as you said um, in your intro, that there were times in my life where, you know, I, I didn't really, I wasn't engaged with this lineage and this heritage. And there were a lot of reasons for that. You know, when I was younger, the few times that I would tell people of my relationship, nobody ever believed me. Hmm. So I never thought that it was a point worth arguing. And in, when you're a kid... Is it kind of odd that they wouldn't believe... When you say what your friends or your neighbors or teachers Lots of or? people. Yeah. Well, with friends, think about, you know, when you were younger and you, you know, would interact with your friends or, or your classmates and, you know, you might say something that is boastful or sounds boastful. Yeah, that's true. And they could say, oh, he's full of crap. Yeah, they're full yeah. of crap. So, crap. Yeah. so if I say... You know, I'm related to Frederick Douglass and to Booker T. Washington, and they'll say things like, well, yeah, yeah, right. Well, I'm related to George Washington. You know, that, that, <laughs> so there. That, so there, that kind of thing. And so there were classmates and friends, but uh, teachers as well. And um, I remember there was a principal um, that, that had an issue one time, and, and I, I think I was maybe in kindergarten or first grade, and we had to do um, a family tree project. So the teacher said, go home and tomorrow bring something back, you know, some sort of family heirloom or artifact to show the class and, and do a presentation about your family. So I went home. <laughs> it's going to be a big tree. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I asked my mom, you know, what, what should I talk about and, and what should I take? So remember, the lineage is just on my mom's side of the family. So I wanted to talk about my dad's side of the family. But she runs into the bedroom. And she comes back out, and she's got this cane in her hand. And, and I said, well, what is that? She said, well, that's Abraham Lincoln's cane. <laughs> You're kidding. No, I'm not. And I, I said, you know, Mom, I can't take this to school. People don't even believe right. me. <laughs> so you want me it's to good. walk in? Send them over the top. Mom. Yeah. <laughs> send, send, send them over the top. This is Abraham. Yeah, right. <laughs> she said, no, I'm going. It, it'll be okay. You'll be okay. And first of all, you wouldn't want to. That taken out of the house, though, you wouldn't think. You know, back oh, I left then, it on the bus. Sorry. <laughs> back then, you know, there were a lot, a lot of artifacts in, in the house and photographs and pictures. And you just really think about it as your family, you know, just in your family. If there are things that are passed down, you don't really think about them as these, you know, historic artifacts that would have such value 40 or 50 years from, from you know, at that time when I, when I was a kid. So, you know, photographs we handle as any family would handle photographs when you look at it. We don't put on white gloves and <laughs> you'll go into a sterile room. Put it room. under glass. Uh, <laughs> yeah, put yeah. it under glass. So how'd that day go at school, though? You know, um, it went like um, you might expect. <laughs> <laughs> my, mom, <laughs> my mom got a call um, later that afternoon from the principal, and she said, I've got Kenny in my office, and he seems to have some issues telling the truth. <laughs> <You're> kidding. <laughs> At least that's how I remember it. Um, how have, old were you? What grade oh, was this? I, five, I, I think it was oh, kindergarten, so, so five, five oh, okay. or six years old. And but but if you getting back to the point, it's got a hell of an imagination, though. <laughs> yeah, hell of an imagination. But if you you know getting back to the point that um, you know I didn't, people didn't believe me, so I didn't talk about it. You know, as I got older, it was just something that I just I had friends that I went to high school with and college that didn't even know 
of my relationship until I started doing the work that we're doing now at the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, uh, which we started in 2007. So that's how, how long ago it was. But you were more musically inclined, if I read correctly, <laughs> and that was, that was your first venture out of school then was singing or playing instruments or what? I, um, I actually played sports um, when I was younger. I used to run track. I, I was born in Washington, D.C., and we lived in Maryland, Rockville, Maryland, for a while before my family moved out to, to California. And I, I ran track competitively starting at five years old and at the age of eight actually held the American record for my age group for the 100-yard dash and I was training to... Now, I don't know if I'm supposed to believe you now or not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, I, I could have brought the, the, the news the clipping. I've got, yeah, I do have the medals and, and the news clippings. Oh, that's good. But I was actually training with a guy by the name of Brooks Johnson, and we would run at the track at Georgetown University. And he was training me at that time, would have been the 440, mm -hmm. uh, 440 yards. That's what it was when I was in school, too. Yeah, yeah. for the 1984 Olympics. Wow, and um, so I I trained hard, you know, in the morning after school, and that was my path. Was I wanted to be an Olympic athlete, and then I actually um, started playing football when I was eight, and I fell in love with football, and kind of veered away from my track um, endeavors. And then as I played football all the way through high school, you know, the injuries that I got over the years and the broken bones and that sort of thing just slowed me down. But my coach, my original coach. Uh, Brooks Johnson. He actually did go on to become the Olympic track and field coach for, I think, the 1980 and 84 Olympics. There was the 84, 88. Yeah, Carl Lewis in those then, right? Uh, yes. It, yeah. 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 So then I, uh, I, my goal was to play football in college, and I um, got hurt my senior year in high school, and um, some friends of mine wanted me to join the, the show choir. And um, that was something that I didn't want to do at first, but I had always spent my my time in my bedroom thinking that I was going to be in the Jackson Five <laughs> <laughs> and singing and dancing. And, um, you know, my parents could hear me upstairs, but really didn't know that I had any talent until I actually got into the show choir. And from there, got into a group called the Young Americans, which is a, a performing arts group that was started in 1962. And full circle, I'm actually the board president of the Young Americans right oh. now. But I got into that group when I was 18, and then I met who's now my wife, uh, Diana. Uh, we've been married for 36 years, and we met in the Young Americans. So my whole career as far as wanting to be a football player um, or track star football player turned into now wanting to actually be well, a singer. If you think about it as a kid, you know, those are probably your the two things things I dreamed of. Yeah, either play professional sports, football, baseball, whatever. Or being a rock band, be a singer, yeah. be a musician, right? You don't really dream of. Well, I think I'll go into management. You know, it's uh, so you didn't get one, but you got the other. So congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I look back in my life and everything that I've done, whether it be in sports or entertainment or owning my own business. I owned an advertising and marketing company that catered to the travel industry for a number of years. All of those activities prepared me for what I'm doing now at um, our organization, FDFI. And exactly what does the foundation do? You know, I, I really need to kind of go back to the transition in my life, which, you know, I describe as, as divine providence in my favor. And I, I take that from 
Frederick Douglass in his first autobiography, The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, which was published in 1845. He describes a moment in his time while he was enslaved with the name Frederick Bailey that he was chosen from among all of the children on the plantation on the eastern shore of Maryland to go to Baltimore to be the house servant for his master's family. And he describes that choice of him being chosen as divine providence in his favor because he was leaving in an environment where he wasn't around people that he could learn to read and write because as we know from our U.S. history, it was illegal to teach an enslaved person to read and write. But now he was going to Baltimore. He was going to a big city. He would be around free black children and also around poor white children. But what happened most importantly when he got there was his slave mistress had never had a slave before and she didn't know that it was illegal to teach him. And she was just a kind Christian lady and out of the goodness of her heart, she was teaching her son, and right along her son was this bright, eager boy ready to learn in Frederick Bailey. So she just naturally began to teach him his ABCs. And the lessons continued, and that was really all he needed was that little spark of light into his mental darkness, into his mental bondage. And so the lessons continued for a little while until his enslaver, his master, found out about, about them. And when his master found out, he got angry and he forbade the teachings, and he looked at Frederick, and he looked at his wife, and he said, you cannot teach a slave how to read and write, because if you do, it will unfit him to be a slave. And I hope your listeners caught that. You cannot yeah. teach a slave how to read and write. It's, it will unfit him to be a slave. Yeah, because you, you don't want them getting their own thoughts and start uh, spreading spreading the word to uh, to fellow people there. Yeah, it's cruel, and... But you understand, okay, yeah, that's that's what they did. That's how you would stop somebody from being Frederick Douglass into the future. Yeah, and that um, was the inhumanity and brutality and exploitation of slavery that the federal government and those that were pro-slavery and slaveholders wanted to keep people ignorant um, so that you don't start to think about critically mm-hmm. about your condition of enslavement and oppression. And so when Frederick heard his master you know, can say Can I stop that, you there for a yeah. second? Because that's interesting now I'm thinking about it. You, they probably, obviously, the mind doesn't stop just because you can't read or write. You're seen as you're getting it. So their minds are going, right? And so they're absorbing the world and the cruelness there and, and, and starting to understand. But it really— Not, not necessarily. Oh, that's interesting. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, no, not necessarily. And, and Frederick Douglass you know, talks about you know, this—think about this idea that if you're born into slavery and you've never known freedom and you're told that you're going to be a slave your whole life— and you don't have an opportunity to, to be able to learn. Um, you don't know what freedom is because you've never tasted that. You're not learning about your condition. You're just being told you are a slave for life. Your children are slaves for life. You are my property. You, I own you. I can do whatever I want to you. And, um, and that's all you're being indoctrinated with without an opportunity to be able to think critically about anything in life. And so Frederick really talks uh, about that, that when he heard his master say that to him, he knew right then and there that education was going to be his pathway to freedom. Now, you have to also remember that he obviously was a brilliant kid, that he could teach himself to read and write, and he was very clever in the way that he went about doing that. He Now, remember, he's interacting with the children in the neighborhood, so he can ask them questions. He traded bread for reading lessons with the poor white kids. He would pick a stick up off the ground and say, is this how you write an S? And they would say, no, Fred, this is how you write an S. 
and then he would file it away. And as he's now teaching himself, he's becoming unfit to be enslaved, he's starting to ask questions. And how old was he at this point? He's seven, eight years old. And I have to use an age range because he didn't know his birthday. There were no birth certificates, you know, for enslaved people. And so he starts to ask questions like, why am I a slave? And, And why do you own me? And how come you know your birthday and I don't know my birthday? And then he would turn to God, and while he's praying to God for deliverance from his chains and his bondage, because one of the first books that he would read is the Bible, and he's learning in the Bible that God does not mean for him to be a slave and that God loves him. And he's saying to God, I don't understand how you can, my master can put on a suit every Sunday and go to church and in the Word and the Bible and cherry-pick verses and scriptures find justification to brutalize, dehumanize, rape, pillage, and plunder his property. He's already starting to make this distinction between what he would call the slaveholding Christianity of the land versus the pure, peaceable, impartial Christianity of Christ. And so now he's on his way to eventually self-liberate himself because he's got knowledge. And, And what do we say to young people today? Knowledge is power. You know, that was the case all those years ago. Knowledge was power, and that's why people did not want their property to be educated, to be able to write, because now you can write letters to people. Yeah. and say, or, or read the newspaper. That read be, the newspaper. Yeah. So he's seven, eight, nine. At what? Well, continue the story. What, at some point, he breaks away. He, well, please continue on. So where does he go from there? His, what his master predicts happens. As he's getting older, he's getting stronger, he's getting unruly. You can't tell him what to do. He's not listening. And so he's actually hired out to a slave breaker by the name of Edward Covey. And Covey had a reputation for breaking slaves. That was his job. You know, hire, hire him out to me for a year, and I'll make sure that after that year I send him back and he will be broken, his will, his spirit— his, he won't be want to think for himself anymore. And so he encounters Covey. Covey begins to beat him and whip him, and the whippings become more frequently and he continu- frequent, and then he continues to whip him for six months until Frederick had had enough. And again, he wrote in that autobiography, he said, I was broken down almost to the level of a brute, to an animal, but there was something in his spirit that would not allow that to happen, and he rose up, and he fought back, and Covey and Frederick had a, an epic two-hour battle that was really more of a wrestling match than a fisticuffs, because Frederick was also <laughs> smart and strategic in knowing that had he killed Covey, he would have really had probably shared the same same fate. You know, you know what's, I'm thinking, I don't know if these are bad thoughts or whatever, but I'm, I'm trying to understand the owner... There's a cost involved here, right? So the slave is worth X amount. They paid X amount. So now he has to pay X amount to bring him to this horrible person to break him. Or he could just shoot him, and that's the end of that. So, and same, but the other guy has a business, so he wants him to be there so he can make money doing that. Um, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't know, maybe that was divine providence that the guy didn't ju- unruly shoot him. I'll, I'll cut my losses on this. and Well, let's on. remember that he's property, so there's a value to him. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. So, But the, the value is diminishing because he's pushing back, so that's not being productive. Now i got to spend money to go do this. When, when Frederick—and I, I could talk a little bit um, and a little bit about 
how he gained his freedom, but the cost of his freedom eventually was $711. In today's dollars, that's probably about $35,000. So if you own something that has that kind of value, you, you want to break Frederick so that he'll do the work and be productive and he because he's not doing the work now, but you don't want to kill him because then— He's worth $35,000. Yeah, yeah, you might as well just sell him down south if, if that's the case. So, you know, he fights back. He has, this, has that epic ba- battle with Covey that lasted about two hours in which he defeated Covey. And Frederick really at that time, you know, he would describe that moment later in life is that now you've seen how a boy has been made a slave— now you see how a slave has been made a man, because while he wasn't physically free from his bondage or his chains, he was now mentally free. And he was with Covey another six months. Covey never touched him again, never really? laid another hand on him, another finger, because remember, he had a, a reputation. That was his job, was to break slaves. And how was he going to explain that he couldn't do anything with this 16-year-old boy in Frederick Douglass? He, he couldn't break him. And so that was really Frederick's moment of self-liberation that would eventually um, lead him to make his first attempt to escape from slavery at 18. He was caught, and he was thrown in jail in Easton, Maryland for a couple of weeks. And that courthouse where he was in jail still stands today, and there's actually a statue of Frederick Douglass in front of the courthouse. But in 18... Well, actually, let me ask you that. Why would they throw him in jail? Why wouldn't they just return him? See there, and or sell him again down yeah. south. There are a lot of things that happened in his life that, again, were divine providence in his favor. You know, there were certain things like the slave mistress giving him those first lessons. You know, the encounter with Covey and that he doesn't get killed um, when he gets caught at trying to escape at the age of eighteen and thrown in jail. He could have been sold down south, but his master sent him back to Baltimore back to the big city, which is where he would eventually escape from. So you can't Mm. describe these things without thinking that there was some sort of intervention that happened in his life because he would become Frederick Douglass and become the prophet of freedom. And so, um, you know, these are things that are interesting to to think about looking back now through the prism of history. And he, so I don't want to skip around too much on his age, but at some point he, he became educated um, and he then taught, or what was his, what did he think his purpose was in it, say, in his 20s? What, what, what was he attempting to do? While he was enslaved, he would speak as a preacher in the AME church, and so he's honing his skills as a speaker. When he escapes by train and by boat on September 3rd, 1838, at the age of 20, he would eventually land in New York City. He would write a letter back to my great-great-great-grandmother, Anna Murray Douglas, who, who actually helped him to escape by selling her personal belongings to finance it, sewing the sailor's disguise that he would wear. And without her intervention or planting the seeds of thought in his mind as they're starting to think about a life together and falling in love, they met in Baltimore at some point. She was the first person in her family to be born free. And he was enslaved. And she said, Frederick, you're not meant to be a slave for life. And as they're starting to think about having children together, she said, I don't want our children's father to be a slave. So had she not done all that she did, who knows if he would have had the courage or the wherewithal to escape. And had we had not had the contributions of Frederick Douglass as a great abolitionist, we might be a very different country 
sitting here today. So getting to your question about 22, 23 years old, what was he thinking? With the help of conductors on the Underground Railroad, which was a network of people, places, and spaces working together to help freedom seekers make it to freedom in Canada, it was suggested that Frederick and Anna go to New Bedford, Massachusetts, because Frederick could get work on the ship docks. He had acquired a a skill as a ship caulker while he was enslaved in Baltimore. They land in New Bedford two weeks later after that escape, and then Around 22 or 23, he was invited to come to an anti-slavery meeting on Nantucket Island, and William Lloyd Garrison, the white abolitionists and Garrisonians and other abolitionists were at that meeting, and having this fugitive slave and Frederick Douglass in the audience, they asked him, just will you stand up and will you tell the audience your story? What was it like to be enslaved? And he said he was, he was so nervous that first time speaking in front of a white audience But when he stood up and he told his story, he had a natural gift for communication. He was eloquent. He was charismatic. He was theatrical. He was even funny in some of the descriptions of the characters that were came into his life was he when he was enslaved. And those abolitionists knew that they had a star in their hands. And so they asked him to join the anti-slavery lecture circuit as a paid lecturer, which he accepted. By now he's changed his name from Frederick Bailey. to Frederick Douglass to make it harder for his master to be able to track him down. Well, just to stop on that point for a second, because that, that's what would happen, right? You, they, a fugitive slave, if they found you, you were returned. If somebody said, that's my property, they ship you back to Georgia or whatever, right? If, yeah. if you are found, um, after 1850, uh, the fugitive slave law of 1850 meant that you could no longer go from a slave state like Kentucky across the Ohio River to a free state like Ohio, prior to that 1850 law, you could look back really at your master and say, you know, I'm, I'm free. You can't come and get me. Now, there are different circumstances, and not everything is black or white. You know, there every it was different everywhere. Um, so him, Frederick, being in New Bedford, he was in a free place, but it didn't mean that if somebody came and captured him, he had, he had no rights. He was mm-hmm. not a citizen. So he was still in danger in being in, um, in New Bedford. So he, now he goes out on the, the lecture circuit, and he's just telling his story. He's going from town to town, city to city. But then he started to have a problem that people doubted that he was a slave because they couldn't wrap their minds around what they thought an enslaved person looked and sounded like because if you... If yeah, you, why is he educated and how does he speak so well? He yeah, why, a slave. yeah, he he couldn't yeah. be a slave. You know, I, I'm being told, you know, the American public is being told that people of African descent are not worthy of freedom. They're not worthy of citizenship. Perhaps they're better off in slavery because they can't take care of themselves. They're getting the Christian religion, making this group and other to justify taking away their humanity and taking away their freedom. So if that's what I'm being told... That's what I believe. And so now I see this man who's eloquent, charismatic, he's good-looking, he's dressed to the nines, and he is telling his story. People started to call him a fraud. So in order to prove he was who he claimed to be, he wrote that first autobiography, The Narrative. But then he had another problem. It became— Yeah, get too famous. (laughs) It became a bestseller. And he was an instant celebrity and a household name, and now his master knew where he was, you know, really— any moment uh, uh, at any time. Yeah, he's, he's being billed at these different places. That's easy to find then. 
Yeah. And in the book- So he, what happened? Did they- Well, in the book, he named names and he named places because he knew that the book had to be factual because if, if people were able to prove any part of it as not being truthful, then everything falls apart. And t- to the point that the book was factual, here we are 175 years later, and we're still talking about it. It's a book that the Library of Congress named one of the 88 books that shaped America, and it's a classic piece of literature. So he would have to flee to Europe for a couple of years as a cooling off period, and that was suggested by the abolitionists. You, you need to get out of here. And so he would travel from Scotland, Ireland, England, and talk about the abolition of slavery in the United States. And he landed in this place called Newcastle-upon-Tyne in England, and his abolitionist friends there um, did a fundraiser and purchased his freedom from his enslaver for that $711, and he was able to come back to the United States a free man. It's fascinating. Can you talk or describe a little bit... um I don't know if the word controversy, but his interaction with Lincoln. Yeah. And some of the conversations or, or speeches he had about Lincoln and so forth. Can you describe that or talk about that? When he comes back to the United States, he would settle, he and the family would settle in Rochester, New York, and he would begin to publish the North Star newspaper, which became the leading abolitionist voice. And it was really, you know, the first time that a black man was publishing his own newspaper. And he was very critical of, of Lincoln. Um, he thought that Lincoln was slow to move toward emancipation, which he was. You know, Lincoln was a politician, and he famously said that if I could keep slavery and save the Union, I would do that. If I could end slavery and save the Union, I would do that. So whatever was going to be, uh, you know, the best pathway forward to saving the Union, and Frederick thought that, you know, slavery, that institution of slavery, needed to be brought down and immediately. And so the importance of Frederick and the abolitionists is that they pushed Lincoln to the point where he would eventually sign the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, which would free only those that were enslaved in the states that were in rebellion to the Union. It did not free everybody that was enslaved. We would need the Civil War and then the 13th Amendment to make slavery illegal. But they had, Lincoln and and Douglas had kind of an off and on relationship, a hot and cold relationship. You know, there were times, as I said, that Frederick was critical. And then there were times, especially after Lincoln was assassinated, that Frederick, you know, talked to him, talked about him in a positive light. But they met at least three on three occasions that we know about. And I always like, you know, we spent a lot of time talking with young people and they ask the question, you know, they're always fascinated about the interaction with Douglas and Lincoln. And so I talk about the third meeting, which was at Lincoln's second inauguration. And there's a, a photo out there that you can Google search. And you see Lincoln um, giving his speech. And in the audience near the front is Frederick Douglass. And then on the balcony above Lincoln is John Wilkes Booth. So it's a really, really interesting photograph because obviously we know what happens yeah. with Booth and the assassination. But... Afterwards, Douglas was invited to the presidential gala, and he accepted. And when he well, got, that's interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. It's a big <laughs> invite. It was a big invite, but when he got there, they wouldn't let him in. Oh, all right, well, <laughs> waiting for that part. <laughs> yeah, you know, here was the most you know famous black man in the country, and really, arguably, in many parts of the world. Um, you know, written by then a couple of autobiographies, was the publisher of the North Star, was the leading abolitionist of the abolitionist movement, and he was well-known, and Lincoln obviously knew who he was, 
But um, so none of that mattered because he was black. He wasn't getting in. But when word got back to Lincoln that he was out front, Lincoln said, oh, no, you let him in. And as they were walking toward each other in front of all of the guests, and so imagine, you know, Lincoln, it was said that he was 6'4", and with that hat he would wear, he was even taller. And Douglas was said to be about 6'2", and so they were very tall men for the time. So they're, the visual, if you can imagine it, they're towering over the guests, and they're, as they're coming toward each other, Lincoln points out, and he said, here comes my friend, Frederick Douglass. I want to know what you thought about my speech. And Frederick said... It was, it was a sacred eff- effort, sir. And Lincoln called Douglas one of the most meritorious men in America. And I truly believe that had they not had that relationship, because Lincoln did not consider black people equal to, mm-hmm. to white people. And, and white ab- many white abolish- abolitionists didn't as well. So you had really two questions. You had the question, is slavery is morally wrong? But then the other question was equality, just because they may be freed one day that having them be equal is a whole different question. And so that was that was an issue for, for Lincoln. But in Douglas, he sees this man that is his equal. Douglas never spent one day of his life in a classroom. He had no formal education. Lincoln didn't have any formal education. And they kind of had parallel lives as they were coming up, although it was worse for Frederick because he was a slave. He was born into slavery. And so that relationship was really important for the history of our, our country and the future of our country. I'm surprised it hasn't been a movie somewhere. I mean, you can almost that's like a perfect movie scene of them parting the ways of the crowd for Lincoln to point to him and say, let him in. That's yeah, there's been amazing no, story. There hasn't been a feature film about Frederick Douglass, surprisingly, but um, stay tuned. All right. Well, I think the time has come. Yeah. So can we switch ancestors for a second? Because I, I was well before we do that. Okay, let's, please. Yeah, let's go Continue. back because we the, your original question uh, to me was how, what changed for you in your life mm. because we were talking about me being disengaged mm. from this lineage and I described a moment in time in my life that was divine providence in my favor, and that was in two thousand and five. I read a a two, 2003 National Geographic magazine, and the cover story was 21st Century Slaves. And it was an article about human trafficking and modern-day slavery. And when I read that article, I, like most people, thought that slavery had ended. I, I knew it had ended with the Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil War, and the 13th Amendment. In my mind, slavery was over. But this article was telling me that slavery still exists in every country around the world, including right here in the United States. And there are millions of people living in bondage and some living in conditions as horrific as what my ancestors endured. And half of those people that are enslaved today are children. And so I started to do more research. And I remember one night I was reading an article, um, it was a research article, and it was about a 12-year-old girl who was forced to be a sex slave in the brothels of Southeast Asia and service countless men every, almost every day. And my daughters were 12 and 9, so my older daughter was the same age as this girl that I'm reading about. And down the hallway, I could hear my girls getting ready for bed, and they were laughing, and they were you know, t- about to get down on their knees and say their prayers. And, and then my mind just starts racing, and, and I can't wrap my mind around what I'm reading about this 12-year-old girl in Southeast Asia and what I'm hearing from my own girls. And I just started to think that's what young girls and boys should be doing is getting tucked safely into their beds and not being forced into bed to service some sick individual. 
And I had this moment where I went in to say goodnight to my daughters, and I couldn't look them in the eyes. And I couldn't look them in the eyes and just walk away and not do something about this issue. And everything inside me just started, you know, just going crazy, just firing and welling up. And then all of a sudden, I, I started to think about my ancestors and, and their struggle and their sacrifice and, and everything that they had done for our country, for our family, and how I had really taken it for granted my whole life. And then I, I realized that I had this platform that my ancestors had built through struggle and through sacrifice. And I felt like we could leverage the historical significance of my ancestry to do something about this. And I started thinking about Frederick Douglass as the great abolitionist. Booker T. Washington is the great educator and founder of Tuskegee Institute. How do we combine these legacies? Aha, abolition through education. So in the same way that Frederick heard his enslavers say education will unfit him to be a slave, how can we unfit communities to allow slavery to exist and thrive today through education? And so my mom and I and a business partner, Robert Benz, two years later started the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. So in 2007, we launched, and then we immediately turned to schools and, and got to work. You know, that's um, I'll touch on this just because I read it, so I'm not uh, forcing myself into your life here too much, but that's interesting how you had that epiphany or however you want to describe it, that that calling that you heard at that point. And we talked earlier about, you know, whether or not that's a weight or so on somebody's shoulders, whomever that lineage might be that they're from. But your grandfather didn't didn't take it well. Oh was... yeah, that's the um Frederick Douglass the third, so my grandfather, Frederick Douglass's great-grandson, so my mother's father. And I talked about how he and my grandmother met in 1941 at Tuskegee. Now, my grandmother was born on campus at Tuskegee in the hospital, but at the time she was living in California. And so she was just home for the summer. She was on campus to meet friends, and so she was rushing up across the other side to meet, meet friends. But my grandfather, who was a brilliant man, he was a surgeon, and he was there because he had been commissioned by the um, Veterans Administration to go down there during World War II. But he always carried this weight of expectation on his shoulders, and people expected him to be an iconic leader, like his namesake, like his great-grandfather. And that was something that um, he just couldn't carry. And after, um, when my, my grandmother was three months pregnant with my mom's, that weight became too much for him to to endure, and he took his own life. And so my mother was raised without a father. And, um, and, and then when I came along, again, with this dual lineage, my parents and grandparents and my great-grandmothers went in an opposite direction, and they weren't going to put that kind of pressure on me. So they really kind of put this prote protective bubble around me um, so that, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't face, face that. And so that was another reason that I was disengaged from the lineage. You know, I'd seen what it had done to my grandfather and to other people um, in the family. And then when you combine that with people not believing you, <laughs> it's like, you know what? Forget it. Yeah, forget, forget it. And yeah. so, again, I spent my, most of my life just really running away from it. Can I ask you, I, I uh, found this part fascinating on Booker T. Washington, part I read where he, going back to how you're describing it, a young 
boy in, in slavery, you don't know any different. Um, and he talks about, I think it's up from slavery in the book, or he talks about how the um, all of a sudden a man in a dress, in a uniform, military uniform, I assume, came into the house or whatever, wherever they were, and read a document. He didn't know what it was, but read this long document, and he assumed later that was the Emancipation Proclamation because he said, okay, you're free. You're free to go now. What what a stark difference that must have been on him. And, and um, just the, seeing that scene where a soldier walks in there and reads this and and just says, you're free. I mean, that's a fascinating thought in the sense of changing your life. Um, anyway, so from there, talk a little bit about what um, what Booker did, how he, how did he succeed? What, what was his path? He would have been about nine years old when that proclamation was read. And so he was in Virginia. So he was in a state that had seceded from the Union. Um, so that applied to, to him and his family. Um, when he was freed, you know, you, if you think about there were, in 1865, there were four million enslaved people of African descent that were just freed like that, like, like with no plan for emancipation. And many of them spent the first two or three years just trying to reconnect with family that they had been separated from. Uh, most didn't know how to read and write. They didn't own property. There was, they didn't own land. They didn't own houses. They're, again, trying to find family. And all they really have is the, the burlap on, on their back. And there was no um, post-traumatic stress disorder designation or counseling you know, as we might see today when, when somebody has gone through trauma, and now you're talking about 400 years of slavery and generational trauma that's been passed down, and that's really in your DNA. And so this is where Booker is when he gets, he and his family get freed, but all he knew was that he wanted to go to school. He wanted to get an education, so he began to take lessons during the day, and he had to work at night. And so he worked as a boy in the salt and coal mines of West Virginia. They would eventually go from Virginia to West Virginia. And hopefully with this goal of being able to continue his, his education. And one night when he was in the mines, he heard these two older gentlemen talking about this place called Hampton Institute in Virginia, which was a place that formerly enslaved p- people could go and get an industrial education, learn a trade or a tool, learn how to do something. And Booker had no concept of what that type of education was, but what he was hearing from this man, he literally thought that Hampton was heaven. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he did. And so he would continue to work, and finally when he had enough money and with the help of his community supporting him, he would make a 500-mile walk to go to school. And that walk— Wait, 500 miles— where the hell was he going? From where to where? He's going from um, West Virginia back to Virginia, where, where Hampton is, and he—that's a long ways. It's a long uh, ways, but it's, how it's, even is it? I hope it's just one road. No, <laughs> they didn't have maps or anything. No, no, no. But it's you know it's a great lesson for young people today. Um, you know when you talk about Frederick Douglass and the, how badly he wanted to get an education, and then you talk about Booker wa- walking 500, 500 miles, that there was no obstacle that was too great, no challenge too great for him to overcome to get an education. For young people today, that's a great message for them to be able to see how badly their ancestors, the people that came before them, 
wanted an education and why we shouldn't take it for granted that we can even sit in a classroom and get an education today. And so that walk, he ran out of money several times. He had to take odd jobs along the way. He slept outside. He slept under bridges. There was nothing that was going to stop him. And eventually he makes it to Hampton and he goes straight to the headmistress of the school and he said, I want to go to school here. And she looks at him and he's dirty. He's disheveled. His clothes are torn. He, he probably didn't smell that great. Huh. And she said, young man, you're not worthy for admittance into this institution. Go on about your business. And now he's 16 years old. He wasn't going to take no for an answer. Yeah, he's all, wait a minute. Did I tell you how far I've come? <laughs> yeah. Well, he, yeah, I'm sure that's what he said. And he, ca- he came back the next day and she shooed him away and he kept coming back and coming back. And then finally... She said, okay, I can see you're not going to take no for an answer. You're driving me crazy here, young man. And so she said, I'll, I'll give, an, give you an opportunity to prove yourself. There's a dirty classroom down the hallway. Go clean that. Let's see what you can do. Well, he had learned the value of hard work working in those mines, and now he was going to be able to put those skills to the test. And he cleaned and he cleaned and when he was finished, she came in with that white glove test that they used to do. You probably remember. <laughs> and she's looking for dirt on the tables, the windowsills, the chairs, back of, back of the chairs. Not only couldn't she find any dirt, she couldn't find one speck of dust. And so she looked at him and said, okay, you've proven yourself. You're worthy for admittance, and we're going to give you the job as a janitor so you can work your way through college. And so he started at 16. He would graduate four years later, and then he would eventually come back to teach at Hampton. And while he's teaching, he gets word that there's, there are this group, there's this group of people down in a place called Tuskegee, Alabama, that, that have raised some money to start a school for people that were formerly enslaved. And word got back to that group that there was this 25-year-old man at, at Hampton that would be the perfect candidate to be the principal and the founder of the school. Booker accepts the challenge. He rushes down to Tuskegee, excited to get started, and he's looking for, you know, a church or an old schoolhouse somewhere to begin his lessons. But as he looked around, there was nothing but dirt and farmland. He's all great. Now this is a thousand mile walk. You got to do pretty much. (laughs) And so he gets down there and he looks around, and there's nothing. And he's, I got to start from scratch. And so he started recruiting students. He started getting them excited about getting an education, and then one of the first things that he taught them to do was to make bricks, and that was so they could build their own school. And so if your listeners want to do a Google search of Tuskegee students building Tuskegee, you'll see these students out there building their school brick by brick by brick. Yeah, so literally, if you want a school, you have to build it. Yeah. So, you know, so what I read also... um he was kind of a tactician, or he was, and since he had to play real politics because, well, W.E.B. Du Bois um, did not agree with his style. Um, talk about that a little bit and how, they ha- how he maneuvered to get ultimately the first black person to go to the White House and sit down and have a conversation with the president. But talk a little bit about that. Well, Booker was born into slavery, and so he came from the fields with a till under his arms. Du Bois was born free, and he came from the city with books under his arms. So they're going to have different philosophies on how their people can advance. And Booker's philosophy was, you know, we have four million people that were freed without a plan, 
And so we can't start reaching for the higher aims in life until we could meet our basic needs in life. So education at Tuskegee started sometimes with hygiene, teaching them how to tie their shoes, how to brush their teeth. But what he understood was that if he taught them an industrial education, which is what he learned at Hampton, teach them to do something, how to farm the land, how to be an entrepreneur, how to, how to make bricks, how to make dresses, so that they could get a stake in the nation's growing economy. So Booker was, was brilliant because, you know, I, I talked about slavery being morally wrong and then equality being another question. And so you have people in the South and, and in the North, quite frankly, too, that have racist ideology. And Booker understood that he was not going to be able to change people's minds overnight. So if we can teach ourselves how to do something, then we can, we can um, advance our own lives. And so rather than demanding that people change that racist ideology, he showed black people how they could change themselves, how they could overcome obstacles. Through education and through presentation and, yeah. and so on and so and forth. And developing strength of character so that they could rise by their own efforts to honorable positions of respect, but most importantly, self-esteem. So Washington was a leader who brought stability in a time of transition from enslavement to freedom, and it may be said that he's the person that did bridge the gap between the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil Rights Movement. So you had Du Bois that was working really, uh, he was working from the top down, Booker T. Washington was working from the bottom up, and so advancement met in the middle. And we all people ask me about that debate all, all of the time as if there's only one way to go about advancing your people. So they both were right, but Booker T. was really in the seat of power. He was a, a brilliant tactician and a brilliant politician, and he was a consummate fundraiser. He was out there raising money for Tuskegee. And his legacy stands in Tuskegee University, which has its you know, historically black college and university, educated millions of, of people and their families. And he, uh, he befriended or was befriended by the founder of Sears, right? Sears Roebuck. Yeah, you've been really doing your, re <laughs> your research. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's a great story. Um, um, Rosenwald. Um, he read, Rosenwald was the, he wasn't the founder of Sears and Roebuck, but he eventually took over the company from Sears and Roebuck and, and led it. And he read, Julius Rosenwald, he read Booker T's biography, Up From Slavery, which was published in 1901, and he was really inspired by it and he wanted to help. Booker was already thinking about how do we um, have feeder schools to be able to feed into Tuskegee, because in the South, after the Civil War, and, you know, I mentioned Tuskegee was founded in 1881. There was no equal education. There weren't, weren't a whole lot of opportunities for um, black people to be able to get an elementary and a secondary education that would then lead them into being able to go to a place like Tuskegee. So Booker T. was already thinking about how do we set up these schools around the South. And so Rosenwald uh, kicked in some money. They partnered and they would eventually build together um, almost 6,000 schools throughout the South. Wow. And Ro what Rosenwald would do is he would put up half the money, go into, they go into community, he would put up half the money, and then he would require the citizens of the community to raise the other half and then to build their own schools so that they were invested 
in that school, in that location. And then I, I also think that they had the Sears and Roebuck catalog at some point, so all of the desks and all of the, <laughs> everything. By the way, we're making money on the side doing right, this. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was a great partnership, and that was just one example of how brilliant. 6,000 schools over what period of time? Um, many of those schools came after Booker T. passed. He, he, he died at the age of 59 in 1915. So uh, many of those schools came after he passed sure. away, but it was still his legacy that, that helped allow, allowed that to happen. And when you talked about his brilliance and his his uh, ability to uh, you know see around corners as a as they say a tactician, he was sought after by presidents to consult uh, presidents on various policy. I mean that was that's phenomenal when you think about it. Yeah, um, it, well, in particular Teddy Teddy Roosevelt, and when they were looking to place federal judges into the South, you know Roosevelt would go to. Washington and ask for his recommendations. So he's helping to place, you know, friendlier judges into the South, um, you know, all throughout the South. And that's just one example. And and with his fundraising, he was making conde- uh, connections with, you know, all of the um, industrialists and people that had money that contributed to Tuskegee. And that was his his main goal was to build that school. So carrying forward then it, um, his style of of reform and and how he thinks we're going to get from here to here and so forth to Martin Luther King was I may be overplaying this but was Du Bois style more Malcolm X and then um, Washington was more MLK? No, I wouldn't say that Du Bois style was more in line with Malcolm X. Um, du Bois style was more of an elitist style. Now remember, again, he was born free. Okay. And he's thinking about, you know, the talented 10th and this idea that, um, you know, we should fight for our civil rights um, now. We should have these rights immediately. And in Booker T., he had a quote, which I'm paraphrasing. He said, you know, what, what good is it to be able to gain access and entry into an opera house if we don't have a dime to spend when we're in there? And so his philosophy was kind of first things first, let's lift ourselves up and get into, again, participate in the nation's growing economy. But that was his public face. Behind the scenes, Washington was supporting civil rights um, initiatives, and he was helping. He was fund- funding litigation in those areas, yeah. if I remember. Yeah, yeah. so he was, he was, you know, people look back at kind of his, his public face and think that he was an accommodationist. But he was behind the scenes. He was doing, you know, he was fierce. He was a fierce advocate, and he was working a lot of different angles. Yeah, like I say, he was literally funding people in the courts to sue over these laws and so on and so forth to make the change. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant how he maneuvered like that. Um, so I, w- I will get back to your foundation, if you don't mind, with maybe as we close out. But seeing, so today, how do we, you know, fast forwarding to today, where, where we are now, Maybe, you know, sorry. What would what would Booker T. Washington say? Here's what we got to do, or or pick whatever, whomever might be, and what their attitude or or direction might be right now. When we, there's probably just there's not a day that goes by that I don't ask what would Frederick Douglass do if he were here today. What would Booker T. Washington do if he were here today? And that really guides the work that we do at our organization when we're coming up with projects and initiatives. And our mission is to build strong children and to end systems of exploitation and oppression 
So we spend all of our time, for the most part, in K through 12 schools. We do the human trafficking prevention education and online training of educators. We work on issues of racial justice and equity. And so I think if Frederick Douglass were here today, he would be pleased to see that we have made some progress, that we were able to elect an African-American president. But he, I think, would also be very disappointed to see how far we still have to go to gain equality in this country. And when you think about hundreds of years of slavery and oppression, racial terrorism, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, housing discrimination, um, lynching, um, you know, all the way up to civil rights and, and the Voting Rights Act, and then how there have been points throughout our history that we want to turn, some people want to turn back the clock and, and, and squash that advancement or perceived advancement. So I think that if Douglas and Washington were here today, they would still be you know, fighting for equality. They would still be speaking truth to power. And Frederick Douglass, had a, he had a lot of great quotes. He wrote thousands of articles. He wrote three autobiographies. Um, he just, his, he was about words and his oratory and also his vote. But near the end of his life, he lived in a house in Washington, D.C., in the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C., and it was said that he liked to interact with the children in the neighborhood, so he would frequently take walks. And there was this young boy that came up to him and said, Mr. Douglas, I'm interested in fighting against injustice and fighting for equality. What advice would you give somebody like me? And without hesitation, my great ancestor looked at him and said, agitate, agitate, agitate. And so he would be still agitating. And, you know, I think that word now in the political climate that we're in has taken on a different meaning uh, by some of the rhetoric that are out there that's out there by talking about people that are protesting as being agitators. But this idea that that's what Frederick Douglass did his whole life, it's what he did with President Lincoln. He agitated. And then Booker T. Washington worked to make sure that his people were, were uplifted so that they could advance. So I would have no doubt that they would still be we, – we don't know for sure. Nobody can say for sure yeah. what they would be doing. But because their blood flows through my veins, I'll take liberty and say that they would be out there doing that, that same work. We almost need figures that – like we do need figures like that now, but we won't have because they were maybe one of a kind in history of humanity. But um, um, Well, I'll, I'll say that you know, we have the benefit of looking back you know, through the prison, uh, prism of history. And then we hold these people up as these iconic figures and we place them on pedestals when they were just human beings doing the work. And I doubt that Frederick Douglass was thinking back then that, yes, I would have statues all over the place <laughs> and bridges would be named for, for me and schools would be named for me. He was just doing the work that needed to be done without really thinking about so much about his, his legacy. So I think that it'll be for our great, great, great grandkids looking back at us and making the determination were their ancestors on the right side of history or on the wrong side of history. And there will be figures and groups that will be uplifted in the same way that we've looked back 150 years ago plus, 200 years ago, and done, done the same That's thing. That's a great point. Do you see any—is there any— Quick fixes. Are there any fixes to where we are right now where we can... seems like we're kind of stalled out. It seems to me that we're, we're, we're hitting... We're, we got confrontation. Um, 
but it just seems like we're not getting where we need to go. And I'm not exactly even sure what that is other than, uh, you know, kind of a general sense of equality and so on and so forth. But it just seems we're, we're, um, we're battling more, it seems with less definition of what we're fighting over than, than really saying, here's the course here. We got to go ABC to get to D. Do you see any uh, hope or any path forward that we can hopefully kickstart this and, and get past the, uh, the yelling and screaming and so forth? What do you see? Yeah, well, there are no quick fixes. We know that. <laughs> uh, another great Douglas quote, without struggle, there is no progress. And so when we look back at this moment in time, I have a feeling that we're going to look at it as great struggle, which it is, but that we're, it was necessary for us to be able to, to make progress. You know, throughout history, there's been this, this push and pull and, and prior to the Civil War, you know, we had people that had the audacity to think that they could dismantle and bring down the institution of slavery, and, and thank goodness. I mean, imagine that, living at a time when your federal government said it's legal to own you and illegal to teach you. Most people, I think, would run away from that challenge. So we're definitely facing challenges today, but I think that it's part of the process, and I am hopeful that on the other side of this, and I don't know that it'll be in my lifetime, I think all of us want to see things happen immediately because we're living in this time. But the work that we do at our organization is for my kids and my great-grandkids my great grandkids and great-great-great-grandkids, and that this is a necessary struggle that we need to go through. We're, we're so polarized and so far apart for, for a lot of reasons, and, and in my opinion— it's because we don't talk about the true history of this country. We've never had any type of um, reckoning with the true history of this country. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because I've heard that before, and, I, and I, I'm not sure I understand that in the sense of obviously we have a history. We, we have history books, and we, we talk about this. Tell me more what you mean by that. What, what would be a, a true or fuller reckoning? Well, I can talk about when I was in school. And the history that I was given was a whitewashed, sanitized version of history that placed people of Native American descent and African American descent, people of color, into um, an inferior position. And that was designed because people that are the victors and hold the power shape the narrative and tell the story. So if I'm going to tell the story of white supremacy, then I'm not going to talk about, for instance, black pioneers that forged new frontiers into the West long before the white pioneers like Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and those types of uh, figures or characters that were given in history. And if I'm a black kid sitting in the classroom, I'm not given the radical Martin Luther King who was not satisfied with slow incremental progress. I'm given the watered-down, sanitized version of Martin Luther King. I'm not given the Frederick Douglass that looked directly into the camera and who became the most photographed American of the 19th century because he understood that this new technology that he was coming of age with, he could help to make his arguments for liberation and equality. And he said, when you look at a photograph of me, you're never going to deny that I'm a man worthy of freedom and worthy of citizenship. And he said, I'm not ever going to look like a happy, amiable fugitive slave. 
So what he's doing is he's trying to counteract that notion in the public consciousness that, again, people of African descent were not worthy of freedom. They were better off in slavery. Any, say anything to justify taking away their humanity. So I'm not given that, that Frederick Douglass. I'm given the safe grandfatherly figure, the prophet that's looking away from the ca camera, because if we're going to give some black figures in history, we've got to give the ones that are going to be safe. And that's just, that's just two examples, but we can go and look at the way history has been told in this country, even with you know the, the fairy tale songs that we sing about Christopher Columbus and founding you know, 1492 and the ocean blue and all of these things that, that were given. Because if, if black people are shown people that they can relate to, then they're going to start to ask those same kind of questions that Frederick Douglass asked. Why am I a slave? Why do you own me? We'll start to ask, well, how come I'm born into a certain zip code and I have less opportunity and access to good health care and education and economic opportunity and housing versus someone else born into another zip code and through no fault of their own, they have, they have all of these opportunities and where we're not star starting with a level playing field. And so these are the types of things, if you keep people just in a certain educational position, then they're not going to ask these kind of critical questions. I think that we've gotten better in this country at telling the true history and talking about Native American extermination and, and slavery. But we have not had a conversation where everybody comes to the table and really has a reckoning with the, the history of this country. So I, I think that unity is in our future, but you can't get to reconciliation until you have a, have a truth-telling. You, you just can't. It's like there's this— Well, that's okay. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point, what I'm trying to get in on, because South, South Africa, you had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission because it was— in real time, right? They said, people come forth and tell your story. What did you do? Why did you do it? Um, we can't have that in a sense of real time, obviously. So it's, I understand what you're saying, but I, I don't know the efficacy or, or, or how that would play out in the sense of, um, we, we certainly we need to recognize not just past injustices, but current. As you said, why are these zip codes? Why are there neighborhoods that look almost like an undeveloped country that living in a very most advanced country there is. That needs to be answered. I agree. But when we, how far do we go into the system? To, how, how much do we want to change, I guess, is, is the question. Because I see some people, um, they would like to change the whole system, they say. And I don't quite know what they mean. It's like, what, what system are we looking for here? What do you think you're going to get? As opposed to, is there levers we can pull in our current system that get us, that equalized to whatever degree that's, that should be equal. Um, you know, is there a productive way to do that in our system as opposed to just saying throw the whole thing out and whatever happens, happens? Well, I imagine those are the same questions that people asked in the 19th century. So we had a system of slavery, mm -hmm. and slavery, the country was built off the backs of enslaved Africans. And so you had people that were invested in making sure that slavery continued, and you had people that said, like Frederick Douglass, we need to tear that whole system down because it's not working for us. Um, I think it's debatable today what, what we need to do, and I can understand people that would say this system has not worked for 400 years, so we need to tear it down. Um, and I can also see people that say, well, you know, they're, they're more moderate. We're making slow, incremental progress, and 
you know, if we ask for too much, people aren't going to take us seriously. And getting back to MLK, to Dr. King, he, he gave a speech in 1950-something. It was at the Lincoln Memorial, not the, his famous I Have a Dream speech, but he was very critical about Northern, uh, the Northerners that he called quasi-liberals, that they were happy with the slow incremental progress because it was fine for them. But he's saying, no, we need to move quicker. We need to be more progressive. And this is the same question, one of the questions that we have today. Do we continue with slow incremental progress, which is clearly not working because the disparities and the gaps are widening? You can, widening. You can look across all different sectors. And so if we continue along that path, are, is this country going to be able to sustain that? And I don't believe that it will because you're going to have people that are going to get to a point where they're saying enough is enough. And I, am, I believe that systemic racism exists in every institution in this country. It, it, it does. And, and there are people that will want to blame you know, people in certain communities as if it's their fault and not the racist policies and the conditions that have been placed upon them. Because I think if anybody were in that type of situation, it doesn't matter what your race is, you're going to have the same outcomes and you're going to react the same way. So how do we hold our elected officials at the state level or at the local level, the state level and the federal level and make sure that they're identifying policies that are racist and how to enact new policies that promote equity and promote equality because we can do that. You know, I don't know why anybody wouldn't want everybody to be equal. It's not like it's a pizza. I, I, and we're I, right, right. <laughs> it, uh, no, I, I agree. And I yeah. think that's where, where I struggle in the sense of, um, I think, yeah, I agree with that statement. Most people in America around here would like to see people treated equally, systems treating people equally, an opportunity to advance equally and so forth. Um, but I don't, it, it, the struggle that I come up against, I think, is, but I don't know which part of the institution you're talking about that's that's prohibiting that. And I think you can get to, I thought about this, you know, okay, low-hanging fruit would be uh, systematic racism, A take a 150-year-old city in the South somewhere and say, okay, there's never been a black sheriff or, or anybody in charge of the police department, whatever it might be. You can probably go through their rules and regulations. Well, that was that's obviously not good. Scratch that, and so on and so forth. But if you get to a a city, a thirty year old city in the western part of California, or whatever, go up and down the coast, I, I wouldn't think you would find that systematic um, problem, whatever that might have been over there in, in that southern city. Here, I'm just using a city as an example. I know there's other institutions, but that's what I'm trying to find out, though. Is it something we can actually attain or or at some point are we kind of chasing ghosts in the sense of, well, it's it's a 30-year-old city here. I, I don't know what else. We didn't take any of that from that 150-year-old police department or something. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. But I also think that, you know, I, I've been black my whole life <laughs> <laughs> as far as I can remember. And so my perspective is, is going to be different than yours sure. on systemic racism or inequality. Um, just because of my lived experience. And that's why I think that education is so important because the education is out there. You know, uh, many of the things that we've been talking about during this conversation, 
Um, I, tra- I travel all over, well, I traveled all over the country before COVID-19. I would speak. <laughs> now you're Zooming all over the yeah, country. <laughs> yeah, Zooming all over the world, um, speaking to a lot, a lot of people about, about these, these issues. And most people don't know this history that we've been talking about here. They, they don't know it. They don't understand it. And so if you don't understand it, if we don't know where we come from, we, we're not going to know where we're going, and we're not going to know how we arrived to where we are today. And so these are systems. It's, you know, Paulette and Kirby and I have a good friend, Dr. Daniel Walker, that says all the time that this is not about one person, Bubba the racist. This is about systems that have been put in place to, to prop up white supremacy and to keep people in a position of inequality. And so whether it's a 30-year-old community or 150-year-old community, those systems are in place and you can and you can identify. I mean, they look different ev- everywhere. But, you know, black people and people of color are saying, you know, we we want justice, we want equality. And if we're saying that, we're not just saying that because we we're, we're saying something that's not true. We, our lived experience and, and understanding our history and understanding what our ancestors went through, to give you an example, slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed more than 150 years ago. The ratification of the 13th Amendment was more than 150 years ago. That sounds like a long time ago, but when you consider the generations, it's not. My, my great-grandmother, who lived to be 103 years old, she met Frederick Douglass. You got Douglas. good genes. <laughs> well, I don't know about that because <laughs> the men didn't live as long in the family. But she, she met Frederick Douglass when she was a little girl. And my aunt, my great-grandmother, lived into, well into my 20s. So she knew Frederick Douglass. My Aunt Portia was Booker T. Washington's daughter, and she lived to be 95. And so I remember being younger, and they could tell me firsthand stories about both men. And I introduced myself as a great, 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 all these greats. And it makes me sound so far removed. Yeah, but, but you're really not. That's what I was thinking. When, I'm just yeah. one person away from each man, yeah, yeah. I'm, and I'm one person away from slavery. And think about anything cyclical in any family, whether it be drug abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse, alcoholism, and that cycle, how hard it is to break out of that cycle from generation to generation. And then when you talk about 400 years of slavery— continuing into, I mentioned Jim Crow and Separate But Equal and everything else that's led us up today, it's not that long ago. So it's natural that there's going to be trauma, there's going to be in our DNA, this generational trauma that we're still dealing with, not to mention the policies that have been put in place to keep people in an inferior position. I hear you, and I, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess my question might be, Certainly, I'm not, I'm not going to push back on that history, and I, I totally understand what you're saying about the the travel of that. It did not go fast enough as it should have. Um, the Civil War was decided, Reconstruction, and why did we have Jim Crow, right? Why did we have segregation put into law, right? That's, but do we, do we also recognize, but we did push those out, and I understand what you're saying, not entirely, but we did push out a fair amount of it. And with the efforts of good, honest people, I think that said, this is wrong, this is a problem. And some people obviously push back, but the majority push in the right direction. And so maybe they're not as big a steps as they could have been or should have been, 
But nonetheless, as President Obama said, you know, the arc of history bends toward justice. Are we, so are we getting there? Do we, can we say, let's build on our successes here and, um, and keep moving in that direction? I, I guess the part, really, once again, I hate to beat this one up. I just struggle with what's the exact part we got to do here? I'm all for it, but what, what do we need to do? To get to that, well, I, I get your point in that we have made progress, and that you know Jim Crow laws and and other discrimination and racial terror and racial oppression, we've pushed those out. But I think what we get back to is we're talking again about incremental progress, and incremental progress is good for some people, but it's bad for other people, and it's life and death for other people. So I don't know what the balance is, but I, I know that things need to be changed. And in the same way that the institutional slavery, the state-sanctioned slavery in this country, that institution was brought down, that there are institutions today that, that need to be brought down, that are not working for everybody. What, what, what institutions? Uh, well, I'm t- education. Well, brought, you, How, you don't want to bring down education, right? Well, no, uh, the, the disparities in education. So disparities in education, disparities mm-hmm. in health care, mm-hmm. disparities in economic opportunity, the wealth gap that just doesn't affect people Yeah, let me color. touch on that for a second because I, I agree. And this, to me, somewhat crosses race lines in the sense of the inequality in wealth. You go through – J.D. Vance wrote a book called uh, The Hillbilly Effigy mm-hmm. um, a few years back. I read it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And so he – his where he grew up in in the um what do you call those hills you know in in Tennessee the, the, the App- Appalachians yeah. yeah it went really bad I mean when all the manufacturing left Ohio and so forth over the last thirty years it just decimated communities and he's saying there's there's a commonality when people are poor they lose hope it's degradation of their of their community of their families and it just it it rots the community with that and it starts with the economics. And so our – and I don't mean that any – because obviously slavery is a different thing in that sense. But the inequality that we're experiencing now is just – I think it's only – it's expanding right in front of our eyes, right in front of our eyes as we have this COVID shutdown. The stock market seems to be going even further. Well, more wealth is being created as we sit here to the same percent of people, and people are getting poor as we sit here as well as their businesses are closing. This wealth gap's going to – expand even more um that's the part and i i that's a problem and and i i see that a little bit separate from race in the sense of there's going to be just a lot more poor people a lot more richer people and that's a huge problem i think we got to grapple with as as america um and i said i just i just i make the distinction of of that crosses racial lines and and i'm hoping we can solve that and i want to you know, work with whatever it is uh, those injustices that still occur. Because obviously, we see we see the out um, the output of lack of education. They say the health disparities and so forth. And in an education, I, th- I think it's almost foolish that we're educating people in the same way for the last three four hundred years. How are we not changing our education system when we know people learn differently? Um, it, it's just a fact. Some people learn they have different. Um, qualities of of their intelligence some people are more athletic some people are linguistic some people spatial some people math all these different types but yet we buttonhole kids into no here's what you learn and here's how you learn and here's how we're going to do it and we're not changing the thing 
That, to me, I think we have to break up our education system to really look at individually. We leave too many people behind. If they have a disability, I'm saying, quote, unquote, well, they just learn differently. And, and we're not addressing that. We're just saying, well, you go over there, then here's the only way we're teaching you. And I think that part, I, w- I would hope we would focus on with that. And then hopefully some of those disparities might be um, worked out over time, I think, with, with the education system and that. Regard. Well, I want to touch on a word that you said, commonality. So there, there are people, you know, poor people, poor white people that can find commonality with poor black people. But if you look back in history, whenever, uh, so in the in the 1600s, 1700s, you had, you know, poor white peasants that were finding commonality with enslaved Africans. And so race was interjected so that if you are a poor peasant, you know, and, and let's say somebody rose up to be a professional, to be a doctor, a black doctor, those people would say, you know, I, I at least I'm not. I, I get it. So, so, but, yeah. but, so my point is, so today we can look at the same thing happening, people seeing that they have common interests, and then cultural wars and race wars are being interjected into our lives and into politics by design to separate us. Because if we find that we have more in common and we really believe that, then that becomes a threat to the structures that are in place. I agree with you. And the power and oppression dynamic. I totally agree with you. I I, I agree. And that's that's what I was struggling to say, more or less, is that, yeah, if you you inject too much of, and I don't, I'm not a big conspiracy person, but yeah, if you were, if you can divide up the people that are struggling that that are use words systemically falling behind that percent that's doubling their wealth on the stock market today when over majority of people don't have any money in the stock market so their wealth is actually decreasing so yeah if you can divide them that's perfect because then they'll and just that's be, that's what's happening exactly that's where, where we yeah. are in this country so they can just be pissed off at each other fight each other and we're we're going off here to mars mm-hmm. yeah i i agree <laughs> <laughs> so that's a uh well I, like i said we, we've taken a lot of your time but can can I just kind of end with your work in your um, the sex slave mm-hmm. trade? And uh, not not my work in the sex I'm slave sorry. trade. <laughs> my my well, work hopefully fighting not, against. But... Yeah. <laughs> you know, people like to we'll take make that clear clip, clips of, <laughs> yeah, of right. interviews. <laughs> you would not believe this. Yeah. No, um, that I, I read. I'm struggling to remember. And I'll get this to you. That I read an article, the New York Times, about a year ago about um, the amount of of pictures on the website of child pornography, more or less, and probably a lot of it's with, with uh, child slavery. And the amount of this stuff circling around is just unbelievable. And we haven't um, brought our, our laws up to date to be able to to go after these people. And not every um, internet service, you know, Facebook, Google, whatever, is, is providing more, as much as they could as far as unlocking all these photos and identifying those and turn it in. And that's a, uh, I just didn't realize the magnitude of that problem. Uh, There's a lot of sick people out there. There are a lot of sick people. There are a lot of people that are looking to exploit the most vulnerable among us. And with technology and the internet, you know, that's really a runaway train in a lot of ways. But through our work, it's, again, the foundation of education. In the anti-trafficking movement today, child labor trafficking, 
child sex trafficking. Um, you know, there are lots of organizations that are doing great work, but they're reacting to the problem after it's happened. So law enforcement is reacting after the crime has been committed. They come in, they arrest, and they prosecute, and hopefully send the perpetrators to jail. Um, victims, that there are organizations that will come in and rescue and restore and rehabilitate victims. And it really is a victim-centered approach, the way we fight trafficking today. And I'm not arguing that it shouldn't be a victim-centered approach because we're talking about human lives, we're talking about children, and we need more resources for that. But if we're just focused on reacting after the victimization has occurred or reacting after the crime has occurred, then we, as well-meaning as we are, we create this cycle of exploitation that we're just rescuing, restoring, and rehabilitating. And that's very costly on a community, not to mention how costly it is on that child who had their childhood stolen away from them and the trauma. And who knows if they'll ever get back to some semblance of wholeness after being victimized in that way. So that's why our work is so important. We want, through education, we want to reduce the vulnerability of young people to being trafficked so that we can prevent new victims from being spewed into that cycle of exploitation. And so our work with our online training of educators and certification for teachers to be able to teach age-appropriate human trafficking prevention education in the classroom, we started um, in 2015. We partnered with two California-based nonprofit organizations, Love Never Fails and Three Strands Global Foundation and the Department uh, California Attorney General's Office and the California Department of Education to put together a, a program called Protect, Prevention, Organize to Educate Children on Trafficking. And we're in 30-plus counties in California. We're in parts of Utah. We're in parts of, of Texas now. And the way that we designed this online training is for it to scale up, and it's the most innovative, comprehensive human trafficking prevention program out there. And it is a model for the whole country and, and also internationally. We also work with stakeholders and experts in the communities that we're in to develop response protocols so that if a disclosure happens in a uh, counselor's office or a teacher um, hears something or a nurse where that student, that young person has the courage to say that they think that they may be in trouble based on the information that they've heard or somebody that they know is in trouble, we need to make sure that that teacher, that administrator knows exactly what to do, to do, who to call, so that all of the stakeholders in the community, law enforcement, child protective services, um, the, the organizations that provide the rescuing, rehabilitation, are all coordinated to provide that safety net so that that child can get the help that they need. It's also these programs are designed for teachers to be able to recognize signs and look for red flags so they can intervene sooner before a child runs away from home or drops out of school. And this education starts in elementary school. And that's, uh, I think I've heard, that's the, the most common place to recognize or to, uh, for, for that to be, uh, what's the word, uh, discovered is in school. Mm -hmm. um, that's And uh, going back once again to kids not being able to go to school today, that's a loss right now because they're trapped. Yeah, and some of them are trapped in, in situations that are abusive and they have no outlet. You know, school, right. the six or seven hours that they're in school, that, that's an outlet. So, yeah, this, that, that's a problem for people being, you know, on lockdown, on, on lockdown right now. But 
because our education is delivered electronically, we're able to still reach um, many teachers. It's, it's the teachers that get the training, and then the teachers deliver the education to their students. So we're still, our program is still running, and we're, we're making progress. And um, I am hopeful for the future that we'll be able to, again, unfit communities to allow slavery to exist and thrive through education, getting back to that foundation of Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass in education equaling freedom, emancipation, liberation. And, and, and it's a, it's a short-term solution because you're helping to prevent the, the victimization right now, but it's also a long-term solution because you're building strong children, um, kids that hopefully they'll continue their educational career if they decide when they go into their professional careers to be an attorney, maybe they won't want to just be a corporate attorney and make a lot of money. Maybe there'll be an attorney that will fight for the rights of women and girls and boys and, and, and fighting for victims. Or they may start a nonprofit like I've done, um, do something to give back, be civically engaged. And so this is a long-term solution also. And it just seems if, if you can, through your organization, get them out of that First of all, the situation. Second of all, the trauma that they've experienced. So if you can get them just to get to even is probably a lot of work, right? Just to get to even and then just get a job of whatever it might be. Um, that seems like, it, well, you're doing God's work, as they say. So Thank how, you. how can people reach you? How do they reach your foundation? Visit our what website. What can they do to help? Yeah, visit our website. That's the best way to reach us and find out what we're doing, and that's fdfi.org. That's the acronym for Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, FDFI.org. You can um, contact us there if you are, feel so inclined and you have the wherewithal to be able to give us a donation. Uh, we would be grateful for that. Um, we're putting the gifts that we receive to, to good use and good work, and we're seeing tremendous outcomes that are protecting our children from being exploited and victimized. Ken, great story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and the work you're doing now. We hope it only continues and expands, and we hope people chip in to help you in your organization. And uh, great to meet you. Thank great you. to meet you, and thank you for the opportunity to share uh, the story of my ancestors and our work with your listeners. I appreciate it. It's been my honor to be with you. Thank you. Thanks.